0: Our guest today is president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. The Federal Reserve Bank is one of the 12 regional banks across the country. These 12 banks, along with the Board of Governors in Washington, DC, make up our nation's central bank. As head of the Chicago Fed, our guest today Number one, oversees the work of roughly 1,400 employees in Chicago and Detroit who conduct economic research. Number two, supervise financial institutions. And number three, provide payment services to commercial banks and the US government. He earned his bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Virginia and his doctorate in economics from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Evans. Charles? All right. Thank you.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, truly a pleasure to be here. I have to admit that uh, this is only my second time ever attending one of these luncheons. I was here last year when uh, one of my directors, Jorge Ramirez, who's on our board, uh, spoke. and. It was such an enjoyable experience and uh, almost a raucous event. Um, I went back and I sort of said, I, you know, I, I'd like to speak at that, see if I could survive a group like that. So uh, here I am. Thanks, uh, thanks to Jay Doherty and Professor Green for uh, having me. Uh, you know, so it turns out that I've been president of the Chicago Fed now for eight and a half years, since September of 2007. And in this time, We have experienced a financial crisis, something that's called the Great Recession, a slow recovery, and low inflation below our 2% objective that the FOMC sets for ourselves in order to meet. The Fed has used unconventional monetary policies to address these enormous challenges, and they've been quite controversial, actually. With this in mind, what I'd like to cover this afternoon Uh, is the following and hopefully leave time for ample questions. First, I'd like to talk about the economic outlook. At the Chicago Fed, we expect 2016 growth will be 2 to 2.5 percent and I think the fundamentals are really quite good for the economy going forward. Uh, I'm going to try to explain the objectives of the Federal Reserve and discuss how far we've come. And finally, I hope you will better understand where we're headed, what the Fed hopes to accomplish, and in all frankness also what no one can expect the Fed to address because expectations are often high on this last point um, is the following observation trend growth rates for the US economy are now lower than they were 10 years ago that is we previously used to experience three and a half percent economic growth over the prior three expansions but now we are expecting a mere two percent growth going forward. This is an enormous difference and has strongly adverse implications for future living standards, in all frankness. Only innovation, labor force increases, and non-monetary policies can truly improve these outcomes. And finally, I must say, these are my own views. They are not the views of anyone else necessarily in the Federal Reserve. (laughs) All right. Okay. this year's outlook. Economic fundamentals are really quite good. The economy we expect will grow two to two and a half percent this year, and the national unemployment rate should edge down further to four and three quarters percent. Now, sometimes you hear people say that's not really the right unemployment rate. In fact, there have been political candidates who have sort of said I think the unemployment rate might be as high as forty percent. That's a little large. Um <laughs> but there are other measures of unemployment that pertain to people who have less of a firm attachment to the labor force, people who aren't in the labor force but would actually take a job if somebody came and offered it to them. By those measures, which we refer to as the U6 measure, unemployment hit a high of 17.1 percent during the recession, and that has come down to 9.7 percent. Unfortunately, that is a measure that tends to be higher than the average unemployment rate, but it has come down a lot, and that's a sign Uh, a good sign for the economy US labor market has been strong for quite some time payroll employment has been growing on average firms have been adding two hundred thousand jobs per month for the last two years and unemployment has fallen to 4.9 percent improvements in labor markets have increased incomes supported strong consumer confidence and led to higher consumer spending that's a really important ingredient in our forecast the consumer Lower energy prices are good for consumers. Auto sales have exceeded 17 million at an annual rate, and low financing costs have helped helped support these sales. We're seeing improvements in housing construction, but levels remain below the stronger periods before the recession, in part because uh, there's, in part due to the slow construction supply response, people aren't building as many houses, and also there are continued challenges from remaining Homeowners who are underwater with their mortgages. Now, there are other weak spots in the economic outlook, in all frankness. Corporate spending on physical capital expenditures has been weak. Low oil and commodity prices have reduced capital expenditures related to mining, drilling, and fracking. And the international sector has also been a drag on growth. But you put everything together, I could go into more detail, but I won't. Uh, Real GDP growth for 2016 is expected to be in the 2 to 2.5% range, and that's above current trend growth estimates. Now, the Federal Reserve made news last week coming out of our March 16th Federal Open Market Committee meeting. And you might ask, what was that news? (laughs) Last year, we raised the federal funds rate target in December for the first time in seven years. We had had 0% short-term interest rates, and the bankers in the room know what I'm talking about as much as the passbook savers. Zero for seven, and I've been doing this for eight and a half years. Many expected a gradual but steady pace of rate increases in 2016 from the Fed. Now we're in the middle of March madness. You might have considered treaty monetary policy like your NCAA basketball bracket pool submission. Now think about that just for a minute. If you had done that, I'm guessing that many of you would have submitted four rate increases in your 2016 pool, and March could likely have been one. Didn't work out that way. The FOMC decided not to raise rates at our March meeting, and our joint economic outlook numbers weren't really all that different from when we submitted them in December. That was probably the news component last week. The economic outlook numbers were broadly similar to December, but the policy rate path numbers were lower. And I'm going to show you that in our famous Federal Reserve dot chart in just a minute. In any event, December or March, the path of monetary policy accommodation still seems extraordinary with the federal funds rate target barely above zero at a mere quarter to one half of a a percent and a very large balance sheet of $4.5 trillion. Now, for me, the rationale for no rate change in March is that economic and financial risks seem somewhat higher for 2016 than we had hoped back last December when we first began raising rates. The start of 2016 has been bumpy. Oil prices continued to decline, falling below $30 a barrel at various times. They're higher now. Uncertainty increased over the deceleration in growth prospects in China. China's slowing has reduced worldwide demand for commodity exports from emerging market economies, cooling their economic and financial prospects too. Financial market prices exhibited greater volatility also. And this further increases uncertainty and the cost of financial investment for businesses. Also. We just need more confidence that core PCE inflation will get to 2% in a sustainable fashion, and that is our objective for inflation. Uncertainty and risks are greater, but the fundamentals for growth continue to be good. So most of the Federal Open Market Committee's cautionary pause in the rate normalization path is about assessing risks and just being careful in my opinion the continuation of a wait-and-see monetary response is appropriate to ensure economic growth continues labor markets strengthen further wages begin to increase more and all of this supports an eventual increase in currently low inflation right back up to our two percent objective okay if i could advance the first chart here Um, this is what i call the bullseye chart the u.s. economy has, and there should be a copy of this in your chairs. The U.S. economy has come a long way from the depths of the economic recession that bottomed in the summer of 2009. Let me remind everyone of the road that we've traveled. And again, it's only a coincidence that this aligns so closely with my tenure as Chicago Fed president <laughs> since September of 2007. Okay, so the bull, the bullseye chart on the left. So here's what the Federal Reserve Act instructs the Fed to do. We're supposed to provide financial and monetary conditions in order to support the achievement of maximum employment and price stability. Now, maximum employment is a slightly complicated concept. With 330 million people in the United States, we're not looking for 330 million people to have jobs. Kids don't want to work my kids, others. Um, and So we're looking for sustainable levels of employment. It's easier really to think in terms of unemployment and how low we can drive the unemployment rate in a sustainable fashion. The line here suggests that the median of the Federal Reserve participants is just under 5%. Something under 5% would be associated with close to full employment, something that's sustainable. And then 2% inflation, that's the pi term and the vertical axis, that's our objective. You put them together, that's the bullseye cross here. So we want to be in the center, just like darts, or if you were shooting arrows, the red. And the current dots tell you the combinations of where we are. So currently, we're well under 2%, and we're just at under 5%. We're at that 4.9% unemployment. Uh, my colleagues and I are expecting... Improvements in the unemployment rate, so we're moving to the left. We're expecting inflation to move up, so we're moving up into not quite the red zone, but we're pretty close to the center. That That's a pretty good outcome. Now, the part about how far we've come. On the right panel, you have a better perspective of what we went through 2008, the recession. Unemployment got to 10%. That's the 2009 line. Meanwhile, we stayed under that 2% Objective almost throughout that, well, by this chart, throughout the entire time. Depends a little bit on the dating on how you do that. But uh, so we're, we've come back, we've had a slow recovery, we're doing better, but we need to get inflation up. Inflation's important to get up to 2%. I run into a lot of people who kind of say, Inflation's low, why worry? It's not that big of a deal. Well, if you borrowed at you know, an interest rate. That interest rate presumes that inflation is going to be a certain level. And everybody wants a good rate, and people want to be compensated for the risks. And so if inflation comes in low, the real burden of that payment is higher than everybody expected. If inflation is too high, then uh, the people who are lending don't get compensated appropriately. So we want to be at 2%. Uh, We don't want to be too low. We don't want to be too high. So that's what the bullseye tells us. If I get advanced to the next chart, we'll get to see what my colleagues and I think should be the setting for appropriate monetary policy. So this is referred to as the dot chart. There are 17 participants at FOMC meetings. Um, and before our quarterly meetings, we submit our economic projections. Those projections are premised on an appropriate setting for monetary policy and the federal funds rate. My idea of appropriate policy could well be different than Chair Yellen's, former Chair Bernanke, all of that. So we all have our setting at the end of 2016. That's where I think the funds rate should be. I'm one of those dots, 17, 18. And then the rightmost is the long run. If we're going along and we're in a good steady state for the economy with growth, that's where we think the appropriate neutral setting of the funds rate is. if you look for the median dot in 2016, it's just ever so slightly below 1. That's going to translate into two increases expected in 2016. That's what the pile of dots just below 1 tells you. Some people think higher, one person thinks lower, and the same with the others. So. You know, it turns out that I used to sort of look at these dots and think that they were a bit too restrictive for what I thought was appropriate and where the economy was and inflation. And so I used to be sort of on the lower side of most of those dots. I now think that the median of those dots is really a pretty good setting of that. And so, um, and I think that's a good reflection of what a lot of people are thinking. On the other hand, if you look at the financial markets' futures, they've got a different opinion of that. That's that red line. And they think that we're getting out ahead of ourselves. They think that they must be thinking. I, I can't interrogate them. You know, if I could sort of have a couple, well, anyway. a lot of people would come up and tell me things. But it does look like um, you know, they're not expecting us to take off quite as exuberantly as displayed there. Um, so we made good progress, and the outlook is for above-trend growth this year and next. But you've got to remember, only in Lake Wobegon can the economy be above trend each and every year. So this brings me to the subject of public perceptions of monetary policy. Let me be clear. Public opinion surveys of the Fed can be brutal, (laughs) brutal. Back in 2009, Gallup ranked a number of government institutions, political institutions, and private enterprises. The Fed came in lower than the Internal Revenue Service. (laughs) We didn't laugh everyone took notice well look i got to be honest with you risking being unpopular is part of the feds job description in my opinion central bankers we describe our jobs as so difficult that we need to have a large measure of independence from political pressure when we're making hard decisions think about what i just said independence from political pressure. I'll be honest with you. Every time I say that, it sounds a little arrogant. Independence. But we need to be accountable. What we mean by this is somebody's got to make the hard decisions. Not everybody will. And we need to be accountable for following through. This is not the stuff of winning popularity contests. For example, Paul Volcker was chairman of the Fed in 1979 when inflation was running at double digits. He led the Fed to take strong actions to break the back of inflation. That required allowing short-term interest rates to rise to 18% or higher. Mortgage rates skyrocketed. The economy went into a big recession, and inflation came down. If Volcker had had to ask permission from politicians running for office, no one would have had the courage to endorse those necessary actions. He needed to be independent and then be held accountable for the implications of those policies. Inflation did come down, the economy recovered, and a long expansion began in the 1980s. Morning in America was Paul Volcker's job performance documentation for a job well done. Hitting our bullseye is an important part of being held accountable. Ben Bernanke needed that same degree of independence to undertake extraordinary policies to prevent a second Great Depression. Looking at the bullseye chart, we've come a long ways back. But the economic recovery has been a slow and modest one. Unfortunately, as professors Reinhart and Rogoff have documented using many centuries of data, slow recoveries have been the experience of virtually every other economy who has suffered through a large financial crisis and recession. Still, that's of little comfort. Maybe that's a cautionary lesson not to repeat those periods of financial excesses that led to those financial crises. Unfortunately, the broader economic environment is fundamentally challenging and not always amenable for monetary policy to to address, let alone solve. Trend growth is slower now. In the past, in the past three expansions, we enjoyed average growth of 3.5% for the economy, but now we're expecting 2%. The reasons are a few. Demographics are working against us. The population that is over 16 years of age is going to be growing less than 1% for the rest of the decade. Previously, it grew 1.3% in the late 1990s. Fewer people coming into the workforce and finding gainful employment leads to less growth. Also, the population is graying. I will be part of this. The share of people over 65 years of age is expected to increase from 15% to 19% over the next 10 years. That's more than four percentage points. Slower growth in available workers translates into lower potential output growth. Also, growth in technology is reverting back to an earlier slow period associated with 1973 to 1995, um, those slower growth rates. Now remember, the key for business innovation is not simply some gee whiz, that gadget is neat kind of idea. It comes down to businesses integrating those very ideas into a better business process and making growth go faster because of it. If this lower growth is if this lower growth in innovation and its adoption continues the US economy is also headed for lower trend growth. We need to get innovation up. Okay, I've got one more chart. In addition to all of this, growth gains aren't evenly shared these days. This chart reflects that. It shows on the bottom blue real median household income, median Smack in the middle, half the people above, half the people below. And a measure of average income growth also per household. The levels don't really correspond. It's got a few more things, but the trends are indicative of the changes. Median household real income has been virtually flat for 15 years, while average income growth per household has risen, risen at a two percentage point rate. Labor skills today are being compensated in very different ways compared to the 1950s or the 1970s or the 1990s. These are bigger issues than what monetary policy alone can address. Other public policies or tax policies are necessary to address that. What monetary policy does is it tries to reduce headwinds or mitigate tailwind so that growth is closer to the average amount so that inflation is at our objective. Um, So we can't change growth rates with monetary policy. It requires other policies. But nevertheless, surely full employment and low inflation at its 2% objective will support solving these other problems. It's easier in a good economy than in a tough economy. The U.S. economy has good fundamentals now as we face global headwinds and risks. Hopefully, the rest of the world will also help reduce those forces. Thank you very much for your attention. I'll be happy to take your questions.
2: If you have questions, raise your, uh, go, go go get them. I have a question. Watch it. 17 dots. Does each person own up to which one of the dots is his or hers?
1: Oh, that's a great question. By, um, convention it would be against our protocol for me to reveal exactly which dot I am um, we don't even get to see the identity of the dots in our meetings I get a spreadsheet that shows me the array of outcomes and also their explanations but uh, our exact identity um, isn't revealed now sometimes people can tell from commentary and I said a bunch of things, and somebody might be able to figure out which one I am or close to it. And usually, people aren't very fooled by that, anyway.
2: Late Mayor Daly would have been very proud of that. Uh, that's the way the central the central committee was run. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Mary, it's just a little. All right, here we go. Uh, Tim Dolan, not a member of the City Club, but I'll still read the question. This is called a. Uh, you, you, you get a mulligan. That's it, Tim. What uninfun what un, and funded, unintended? Unintended. Unintended. Good, good eye. What unintended consequences or current general bank policy concerns you?
1: Unintended. Well, it's certainly the case that um, you know. So we went through a period in uh, you know the mid two thousands where financial conditions were um, you know easy. There was a lot of exuberance. Housing went up. And then afterwards, we had the financial crisis. And in the aftermath of that, Congress and the President passed the Dodd-Frank Act. That's intended to um, help us better ensure uh, prudential regulation of financial entities and all of that. That has come at additional costs. There's no doubt about it. If you thought that there were too many mortgages underwritten, not on the best terms than by writing into the regulations that you need to have appraisals that are meaningful, other types of paperwork and things like that. That increases the cost of all of those activities. As economists or anybody who's just thinking about it, we shouldn't expect less of that that activity will actually take place. You have to worry a little bit that too much of that might be restricted. You want to find the right balance. That's a very tough proposition. We're continuing to work on issues like that.
2: We have Roy Norton, Council General of Canada. Where are you, Roy? I have a student applying for that job, Roy. Just, uh, if you want your questions repeated, you know, next time you're here, follow through, will you? Uh, <laughs> what significant new barriers to imports, say after January 2017, <laughs> you can see he got that job, uh, yeah, give you the higher inflation rate you're looking for? That's from Canada. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly sure what that one's getting at. You seem to know better than I do. Could you... Some some presidential candidates seem to want to stop imports. Ah, okay. Won't that give you higher inflation that you seem to be looking for? Uh, so, I mean, certainly uh, cha- changes in exchange rates that uh, derive from all kinds of things find their way into the price indexes. I mean, at the moment... Um, At the moment, the strong U.S. dollar is finding its way into uh, cheap import prices and keeping inflation down, and we're struggling mightily to get them up. Obviously, things could go the other way. If there are tariffs imposed uh, and people are still sending them to the U.S. because we like those goods and are willing to pay for it, there would be a relative price effect. There's no doubt about that. I would say that uh, in the U.S. we have been fortunate in not having to worry about too many of these explicit. Tax effects that find their way into uh, the inflation data that causes confusion and uh, some challenges in terms of conveying what we're really trying to do with monetary policy. To some extent, I think you need to look through price level changes, uh, relative price changes, and focus on underlying inflation. But I, I take your point. All right, Ryan. Okay. Uh, a lot of these questions have
2: personal implications. Jerry Lozer, where are you, Jerry? All right. Don't, by the way, excellent printing, don't low interest rates threaten pension funds and insurance companies? Wouldn't higher rates solve many pension plan problems?
1: Well, it's certainly the case that if you've got liabilities out into the future and you're going to be discounting them, if you're discounting them at low interest rates, then the present value is higher. Yes, that is certainly right. And I have sat through many different lunches and dinners where somebody puts a, a uh, high duration person next to me, and I hear this kind of comment, so it's not the first time uh, I've heard that. I, I would say that, um, you know, it's not the easiest, it sounds like an easy problem to solve. Why don't we just raise rates? And, you know, it could be done. We could, we, we only raised it by a quarter of a point. We could have raised it two percentage points. We could keep going. Now, somebody was complaining to me the other day they wanted more rate increases, and I said, we already gave at the office, we gave one. Uh, didn't that make you happy? He goes, no, I want the yield curve to go up. I'm not in charge of the yield curve. <laughs> so the long-term interest rates are you know, determined by all kinds of market forces. And what is really amazing, if you look at it, is US has some of the highest long-term safe treasury rates in the world. What are the Swiss paying? What are the Germans paying? Uh, UK's a little closer to us, but they've got other problems. And, things like that. The Germans have very low interest rates. The entire world market forces are brought to bear on these issues. And I don't think it's possible for monetary policy to simply magically raise rates and solve these long-duration valuation issues. OK. Now we have a, um, a wonderful. We need, we need interest rates to go up organically based upon a stronger economy and that leading to rising rates everywhere. Sorry. Okay, I should
2: have gotten that right the first time. That's right. It's OK. By the way, the blue books, get the blue books off. We'll be having an exam on this. I'm sure many of you are ready for it. The chairman, of course, has to leave. Uh, John, you, John, you got a hell of a last name. Hammer, Hammerschlag. Very are good. Uh, please opine on the, qu- Fox television, huh? Please opine on the quality of economic statistics that come out of China. This is not an easy job. I don't want
1: you to know that. Well, until you said China, I was thinking about that former chairman of GE who questioned the Chicago guys and the labor statistics uh, not long ago. Um, Yeah, so, uh, you know, Chinese growth rates are really difficult to assess. I mean, if you ask me about China and what the difficulties they're facing, I'd say, well, um you know they previously had double-digit growth over a long period of time where a lot of their efforts have been involved in uh investment expenditures for infrastructure building highways overpasses new cities things like that now they are decelerating they are going to grow but they're going to grow at a reduced rate eight percent seven and a half percent seven percent now they're down to six and a half percent in terms of what their target is so any economy with the central planning aspect to it, which is contemplating a big transition like this, it would be amazing if it was smooth. Bumps in the road, you know, I can't tell you where they're going to come, but they're likely to happen. Now on top of that, you asked me about the quality of the statistics, and I would say the only comfort I take is presumably they're measuring it in the same way, good or bad, so that this double digit to high single digit comparison is still accurate. But is it really growing at 6 to 7%? I, I don't know for sure. A lot of people track things like electricity usage, which presumably is monitored more carefully, and notice when it moves around and correlate that with changes in uh, growth rates. I think it's clear that it's decelerating. OK.
2: This is the City Club. We, not only do we give you good questions, but some of I, them are even typed. typed in advance. We
1: How did a, they know what I was going
2: to talk about? Perhaps they didn't care. All right. <laughs> they got questions. Carlos Ponce, where are you, Carlos? Where, there he is. Like now, this question is just... almost like an, an essay, but I'll read the first part. An issue of concerns of the Puerto Rican community is the $72 billion Puerto Rican debt crisis. With unemployment in excess of 15% an 11-year economic depression, and all that aside, the Congress knows it has to act, but there is hesitation because the Puerto Rican solution could affect deep debt states like Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. <laughs> How does the Federal Reserve see this issue? It's a, like a three-inch putt. Well,
1: I'm, I'm, well I'm, glad he, I'm glad he brought it home to me, though, with yeah, that Federal Reserve, because uh, I mean, what, you know, what the Fed does with issues. Actually, we do get reports from. Um, Uh, President Bill Dudley of the New York Fed turns out that Puerto Rico is in his area of responsibilities, and he does uh, report on this. But it's a very difficult situation, and uh, you know, default isn't necessarily uh, very bankruptcy is an option, and and things like that. So, um, I would say that what we do in the Federal Reserve, it's the same thing. As somebody was asked me you know, what about China, or what about the dollar, or things like that. We look for the influence of these changes, or what the resolution or lack of resolution of this debt issue would be for markets, and how it would affect the US economy, investment cost of capital, and things like that. But uh, beyond that, I'm not really an expert.
2: Okay, Warren Ribley. Warren, what's the IBIO again? Illinois Biotechnology Industry Organization. Okay. Why are low oil prices seen as a negative in the financial markets, as seen earlier this year while benefiting consumers? Well, let's just take the first part. Why are oil prices seen as a negative in the financial markets?
1: Well, that's a good question, especially for people as old as, as myself. Uh, and, you know, Growing up in the 70s when oil prices go up and it's such a burden. Uh, You know, long gas lines, uh, high gas prices, you easily understand why high oil prices are bad. Why is it that when prices go down, that's not just the opposite of that and totally uh, a good thing? Well, it turns out it is a good thing for consumers, right? If you're you know, gassing up your car and you're coming in from the exurbs or something, this is a good thing, obviously. Um, It turns out, though, that because we have discovered how to extract these uh, more challenging sources of oil and energy from the ground that we've invested a lot in uh, mining and fracking and things like that so that actually is a thriving business so that business is challenged by this is, is part of it so in the old days when we didn't really have much of that activity it was a pure consumer effect now because it's actually a business um, Thriving business and there's a lot of capital expenditures involved in getting the pipe out and digging it out and things like that. If you if you talk to heavy equipment manufacturers who are, you know, selling big mining equipment to extract commodities and things like that, the reduction has really hurt them in, in quite a way. So it's it's the balance of all of those things. Um, so, but for the U.S. Uh, consumer, it's it's a pretty good thing. What what also sometimes is um, lamented is the fact, well, we haven't seen consumption go up as much as you would have expected. I would have expected more. And somewhat subtly behind this is debt levels for households have been quite high. And people have been able to pay down that debt and get to a better position so that they can go forward and, and buy more things. And so it, it's benefited households in many different ways. We have a couple
2: more questions. We have so many questions, and some of them are, are repetitious. But uh, Ron Mitchell from William Blair. Where are you, Ron? By the way, you're not a member. Um, William Blair could afford a membership, just so. (laughs) You know, we're not a charitable organization
1: But they had to pay for lunch, didn't they?
2: They paid for lunch at a deal. Okay. Does... Sound like Donald Trump. By the way, you're sitting at the same podium, standing where where D.T. stood. Does the Fed take into account the monetary... It's... The the mics have been taken away. Does the Fed take into account the monetary policy of other major... economies, I guess, when determining policy. The strength of the US dollar appears to be having a bigger impact than the level of rates. Is that true, Council General uh, from Canada? The dollar? Yes.
1: So, so I, I almost touched on this earlier. We, we do pay attention to financial uh, influences from abroad as well as different markets in the US. And international borrowing rates are another one. Those are. Uh, easily influenced by the setting of monetary policy there, as well as relative uh, currency values. And so, you know, we don't do anything like have a strong opinion on what those valuations ought to be, but we do pay a lot of attention to whether or not our imports are affected or our exports are affected and how that ends up uh, influencing labor markets and real GDP. Okay, we have
2: two more questions. By the way, my brother was in the Canadian government, that's why I and he, that's why I throw that up. And George Ruiz, you know, he, he cut out of here pretty fast after being Consul General. So don't mention my name to him. You, promotion could become less. All right. Edward Cooper, a very good question. To what extent do advances in technology affect your employment target? Pretty
1: well, I mean, technology. Um, changes take many forms and you know right now with the digital economy certainly uh, disruptive technologies are all the rage um, and and so that that sort of you know you might have a production process that's uh, paper intensive and all of a sudden somebody's got something and it's purely digital and uh, printing books and things like that that's going to displace workers from those industries those technologies into other firms and things like that so it has transitional effects until workers find the right place at the right wage uh, to achieve full employment. We do ultimately expect, no matter how disruptive those technologies might be, even if they don't create a lot of jobs themselves, that eventually the migration of workers from one sector to another, that they're going to find employment. But it might take quite some time, and it might take relative wage adjustments, which could be painful for people if they don't have the right skills, and also paying attention to you know the new skill levels that require education and things like that we're, we're monitoring you know quite a lot to have an idea of what that natural rate of unemployment that's sustainable actually is because sometimes labor market adjustments mean that full employment will not be associated with four point seven percent unemployment but it might shoot up to six percent and if we tried to keep unemployment down through accommodated monetary policies we might end up with high inflation that's sort of the story behind the nineteen seventies when unemployment went up so we're always trying to assess those situations and technology plays a role
2: okay we have two questions that are not signed and though we don't have many rules in the city club especially when i'm in charge uh, uh, we can't read questions that are not signed you just got to sign your name so the last question will be for a, <laughs> a
1: good question Keep going.
2: uh... No, don't right. you follow the yeah, rules I'm as a fed right. you know you, you don't even Sorry, don't you don't even, you. you know, take possession of your dot. All right. Uh. <laughs> no, I take that back. My godson works for the Fed in Kansas City. I didn't mean that at all. I didn't mean that at all. Does
1: he have the same name as you? No,
2: thank God. <laughs> okay, Roman Rahani. Where are you, Roman? Wait, way in the room. You're not a member of the city club either.
1: If they had written that they were a member and they weren't, would you have, that? They, they
2: would have been asked the question earlier. Fed's, <laughs> Fed's dual mandate seems to be very close. What signs did the Fed see that caused
1: the, the dovish turn? Yeah, I tried to touch on that in the, the speech. That's a good question because um, we are very close to achieving our employment mandate. Although, frankly, unemployment could continue to go down. We might not have the right answer. It could be that sustainable unemployment is 4.5% or lower. The real test is when inflation picks up and gets to our 2% objective or if it went past that. So as long as we're still underrunning inflation, I think we've got room to uh, see how this plays out and be cautious. But I would say that the reason why we're still being cautious is uh, there's a lot of risk around the world. I mean, if you look at global economies. They are struggling. The U.S. is the strongest economy uh, in the world. Um, You know, the U.K. is doing pretty well, although they're challenging that with their uh, Brexit uh, risks and all of that. So uh, we've got good labor markets. Uh, Inflation is uh, closer to our objective, but still too low. If you look at uh, the ECB, uh, emerging markets have other problems, and China's got its problems. Um, We are just trying to make sure that those risks don't come a wash on our shores and slow things down. So, if we can be uh, a little cautious, I think we've got the um, capacity to do so. How about a big round of applause? That would be very much. much. We got partners here.